Today's podcast was recorded during the 2019 Israel Strategy and Policy Tour, ISAP, for cadets at the United States Military Academies. During a visit to Israel's seat of government, the Knesset, the cadets convened around a table to hear from member of Knesset Yoav Kish, a member of the ruling Likud party, and a Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. At the time of this recording, member of Knesset Kish was in full campaign mode, with Israel having gone back to the polls for the second time in just a few short weeks. Member of Knesset Kish served as a fighter pilot in the Israeli Air Force and also worked as a pilot for Israel's national airline El Al. In this podcast, he shares some of his experiences as a pilot and speaks of situations where missions are aborted in order to prevent the loss of civilian lives. He talks about the contrast of the rights afforded to all of Israel's citizens and compares that dynamic with the rights of citizens of other countries in the region. At the end of his opening remarks, he takes questions that range from issues such as the draft of the ultra-Orthodox community to who might be a partner for Israel from among the Palestinian Arabs when it comes to ending the ongoing conflict. It's a question to which he replies with a rather categorical answer. I hope you'll enjoy this podcast featuring member of Knesset Yoav Kish speaking to US military cadets in Israel during the annual ISAP tour for future officers of the United States Armed Forces, an exclusive project of the Miriam Institute. I'm very happy to see you all here and you're mostly welcome. I'll give you a short brief about my background and, uh, and then a few things about what's going on and uh, then I'll leave it for uh, questions uh, from your, you guys. Uh, my name is Yoav Kish. I'm, uh, I became a Knesset member about four or five years ago from the Likud party, uh, the coalition party, the party of uh, our Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. And actually this is my committee. I'm, uh, I used to be, now we're on verge of changing uh, uh, Knesset, but uh, I used to be the chairman of the Internal Affairs and Environmental Issues Committee, which is the committee you're sitting here, and uh, uh, that's uh, my last position in, this, uh, in the Knesset before we head to elections. Um, it's funny, I'm saying heading to elections, we just finished elections, I got re-elected, and now we're going to another election, so it's kind of a little bit crazy but things happen in politics. Uh, my background, I'll go in short, I joined the army when I was 18. In Israel, the service is compulsory service, men and women. We have a very uh, internal issue regarding the ultra-orthodox uh, uh, service in the army and where they should go, and, and this is a very uh, hard debate within the Israeli society. Uh, leaving that aside, I served for about 10 years in the Israeli army as a pilot. I flew F-16, uh, still flying by the way, uh, on the edge of finishing on the 1st of August is my last uh, farewell flight. Um, participated in all uh, the Israeli wars uh, since I was an operational pilot. Mo most of them were on the Lebanon area or Gaza and 
about uh, five, six years ago, I joined the, the Israeli Knesset. Before that, I was a pilot also in El Al on the commercial air airliner and worked a little bit in uh, startups in the high-tech industry. So that's uh, my uh, background in general. You came into Israel in a very uh, turmoil. You know, we just finished elections, which were we had for about a term of four years. So we managed to uh, develop and move things by our agenda. And then we went to elections, and it looked like that uh, the right uh, led by Netanyahu won the election. We had uh, 65 out of 120. We have 120 seats in the Knesset where you're sitting here. And if you have more than 60, that means you have the majority. 65 uh, members were uh, recommending Benjamin Netanyahu to continue as the prime minister. And when it turned out to sign the agreements between the different parties in the coalition, we failed to get an agreement from uh, Lieberman party. Uh, Lieberman used to be the security uh, minister. And actually, uh, whatever we uh, offered and tried, and we almost you know, gave Lieberman the opportunity to get all what he wanted, he refused to join the, the government, which actually forced us to move in one or two directions. One is that the president, Ruby Rivling, was supposed to give the mission of getting a government to some other party. And that was something that we didn't want. That's why we preferred to go back to election and try to get more votes. And that's a risk, by the way. But actually, when we analyzed the situation, we had 60 against 60 because Lieberman had five mandates. So that's why there was a total uh, uh, deadlock and we couldn't solve it in the current uh, elections. And I hope that in the next elections, we'll be able to get more than 60 without Lieberman. That means that basically would continue uh, to be in the government with Netanyahu. That's uh, where you are right now in the Israeli politics. And we're basically just finished elections and we're starting our next election. So I'm, uh, I already uh, finished two terms in the Knesset, but uh, in a very short time. Uh, now looking at the security issues in the region. Uh, I don't know if you heard about it, just uh, last night there was an attack on uh, T4 uh, in Syria where uh, Iranian forces are putting in and bringing uh, weapons to T4 and trying to push them to our border either in the front of Syria or the front of Lebanon and there was an attack on one of the uh, uh, locations there that uh, destroyed their uh, their target to uh, bring uh, weapons to the region. So we basically, uh, Israel is not taking official uh, responsibility on this action, but uh, I'm just mentioning that uh, Iran lost uh, last night uh, one of their assets, and, and this is a situation that is going on for a long time. For some short period, Israel did uh, took responsibility on kind of attacks, but usually we're trying, and there's no response from the Israeli authorities. Uh, in addition, we have a lot of tension in uh, Gaza, Gaza Strip. Every Friday we have demonstrations. So the Israeli army, it's spread of so many different missions. One could be attacking uh, hundreds or you know, thousand miles from Israel, and an Iranian uh, base that is trying to uh, bring weapons to the, to the region. And on the other hand, facing a mob uh, trying to cross our borders with a target to uh, kidnap, kill, whatever, our civilians. So 
and trying to understand that, that is the complexity of what Israel is facing on a daily basis. <coughs> and putting into that again, that Israel is, is a strong democracy, that everybody here in Israel has equal rights, and that means uh, it doesn't matter which minority you are, if you're an Arab, a Druze, a Muslim, a Christian, whatever, you have uh, freedom of religion and, uh, and uh, everything is uh, equal for every uh, person here. And also, of course, the gay and lesbian community, everybody has equal rights and everybody can do, I think in that sense, uh, that's part of the great partnership between the U.S. and Israel maintaining the same values uh, in uh, the sense of uh, maintaining uh, personal rights. Mm -hmm. And this is something that sometimes people forget. Because, for example, in Gaza, if you are gay people, uh, you're probably either going to find yourself in jail or killed. So this is things that are not allowed there. And uh, if you look at the rights of the people themselves, uh, the rights of uh, the Arab minority in Israel is no other state in the region, Arab state, gives such equal rights as we do and uh, freedom to the people. So that's just to get into proportions in that sense. Um, when I... Uh, and now a few words about my background as a pilot, because I think this has also got to do with, might be interested. We, uh, basically, as I said, I participated in the Lebanon's war and in Gaza. And, I'm, and there's one major thing that in Israel, I think we're, we even took it to the extreme. And that is the sense of uh, avoiding uh, uh, uninvolved damage, let's say, uninvolved people damage. And, some, and there's many missions that you, as a pilot, get the order to send the bomb. You send the bomb, and you are on the edge of uh, cancel the attack. As long and there's, you know, we have uh, eyes on the ground, and we see if uh, not on the ground, but I mean, eyes from above that look at the target. And if we see that there's any chance for uninvolved uh, casualties, we stop the attack, even though that we know that by doing that, we're endangering our own people, because uh, if you're attacking a weapon base or a rocket or whatever, and, and the enemy against us has no moral limits. They're specific targeting our civilians, so it's not a fight between armies. They have rockets that they fire in order to kill Israeli civilians. That's their target, that's their goal, that's their aspirations. And we're trying to hit only uh, the terrorists themselves, and they also hide within the uh, uh, civilian society. So they might be launching their rockets from a mosque, from a, a minister, from a hospital, uh, from schools, and that's because they know that we are avoiding uh, to hurt uninvolved people. So that's the fight that we have in uh, Gaza. If we were acting differently, sometimes I'm t I tell myself, if we were act differently and we would just hit wherever we got uh, fired from, Maybe we would have, you know, some, the results won't be, there'll be more uh, casualties on the other side, but we would stop the war much faster. So right now we're very much uh, careful in aiming and, uh, and on that in Bederch HaKifa, in, 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 by doing so, it's not directly, but indirectly, we're increasing, unfortunately, our own casualties. And this is something that is been... There's a corollary. And this is something that is going on, this argument in Israel, uh, between how 
for example, when we, the last uh, Tsukaitan, that's the last operation four or five years ago, we moved into, we had boots on the ground in Gaza, we had our people, our uh, paratroops going into Gaza, and uh, this was one neighborhood that, you know, some people said, just bomb the, you know, tell the people there that they have to leave. If they're not leaving, we're bombing it, and that's it. And on the other hand, we waited until we saw where the fire came over, and then we hit it. So we paid in casualties on that, and I was very upset that this was uh, the strategy. I think the strategy should be that if we're risking our own men, we should tell our enemy uh, and the civilians there, you need to vacate this area because this area has to be, uh, became a battle zone. Everyone who's in this area is going to be injured. And then you could move in and much safer protect your own people. So in, in this case, I was very upset, and this was also a very big debate. So I'm now just giving you a little bit of the dilemmas that we have in Israel, and uh, I'm leaving the floor for your questions. So uh. We hope you're enjoying this podcast, a product of the Miriam Institute. The Miriam Institute was established in order to provide a forum in which leading Israeli experts of diverse and disparate political and ideological perspectives could come together and share their experience, expertise and opinions about the state of Israel for the consideration of our readership, listeners and viewers overseas by way of online content and in-person presentations, lectures and events. You can learn more about these initiatives via our website www.miriaminstitute.org All of the work that we undertake is made possible by way of tax-deductible donations from people like you. We invite you to make a tax-deductible contribution to our organization via our website and we thank you in advance of your support. Please enjoy the rest of this podcast, a product of the Miriam Institute. Israel's future in Israel's hands. Any questions, please? Yes. Uh, Sir Michael Howard from uh, West Point. Uh, my question is, you mentioned the ultra-Orthodox service. Um, what is the Likud's party's thoughts on this issue? We actually started the process and there's been a big sh change from what used to be here 10 years ago. Uh, I was involved in that process and there's two things that you can learn from that. One, that if you're trying to get to force people to join the army in that sense, you get the positive response. So the people feel that you're trying to uh, force them and they kick off. So you're getting uh, the ultra-orthodox uh, society to be against this kind of move, which reduce the, the trend that people were joining the army on that sense. On the other hand, we believe that you know everybody should be equal. If my son goes to the army, their son should also go to the army, in one exception. And that's what we added as a, Israel is a Jewish and democratic state, so those who are studying uh, in the uh, yeshivot, in the studying Torah, uh, they might be exempt for a few years from going to service. But those who are not, they should come and join the army. And on this, how to do this, uh, basically, I think that we need to get into some kind of coordination with, with them, not, as a, 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 not in a direct uh, conflict, because this turned out to be a, um, actually a, 
reduce the rates of uh, joining the army, and on the other hand, by building their own uh, uh, to them their own uh, uh, line of service. So we have a battalion which is f uh, ultra orthodox, and they do not have women in the battalion, and they are in men only environment, and so they can maintain their own identity, join the army, and uh, service. So. In, to summarize it, we already passed a bill uh, in the last Knesset uh, for, and you need three votes. So the first vote went uh, approved, and in order to finish it, this is what we're going to do in this Knesset, and basically it's taking the same bill, maybe with some small changes, but this is what's going to move. So in general, it gives them, um, as I say, there's a target of uh, numbers of, uh, of uh, youth that should join the army. They should, uh, if they're if, uh, if the uh, society as a whole would say, would uh, they, they fill into these targets, then it move forward with no, uh, uh, no other uh, uh, process. If they fail and there's some kind of decline in their numbers, then there's less money going to uh, their uh, schools and things like that. So there's uh, some kind of uh, benefits and uh, carrots and sticks, as they say, to do this uh, process, to move on with this process. I was asked if you understand why do men are separated from women. I don't know if you know that, but for the ultra-Orthodox, uh, like in the synagogue, there's a prayer zone for men and for women. Their, their belief is that it should be separated. And, they, and that's their beliefs. It's like, uh, you know, you can argue about it, say, I think this is wrong, it's not wrong. But as ultra-Orthodox people, you would see them, they're not touching men and women between them. You know, they won't say hi or something, which uh, you see it on other societies. And they're very much on the separation issue. And for them, if we would try to say, listen, guys, you're joining the army to the uh, normal path, it would, it would not work. They would rather go to jail and won't send their kids to this uh, kind of uh, uh, structure. So we build their own structure for them. It's true that we had voices from feminist voices saying, hey, come on, you're now hurting the women. Why are you doing that? That hurts the women. So it's tough when you need to accept you know, both people and women, men and women agenda is equal on the one hand and on the other hand you want to accept uh, their beliefs and you cannot force them to change their beliefs so also it's, it's not something that we're trying to do so we're trying to figure out the way how do you uh, continue to do both by the way what we do is that as long as it's compulsory service these soldiers has their own uh, own structure once you move into Tzvakeva, uh, which means if, you, if some of them are and they do stay in the army for career, then they're joined into the army uh, uh, mute, uh, normal path, I'd say. So everybody's together. So they know those who want to stay in the army for a career that they have to shift from the separation uh, uh, system that they manage in the, in the ultra-orthodox uh, segment. Other questions? Uh, yes. Yes, yes, yes. All right, sir. Uh, I'm Cadet Drake from the United States Military Academy. Uh, grew up in Idaho. Uh, I'm just wondering, um, who among like the, the Palestinians, either in Gaza or the West Bank, uh, can, uh, can like the Israeli government talk to and negotiate with 
Um, who can they talk to who's ruling de facto in those different regions? Could you repeat the question just for the benefit of the I think camera? everybody, ah, okay. Yeah. okay. Who could be our partners to negotiate in between the Palestinians in Gaza and the Palestinians in uh, Judea and Samaria? Yes. Okay. So in Gaza, the ruling party is Hamas, which is an extreme religious uh, movement which on its flag is, uh, their, their main belief is to destroy Israel. So there is no negotiations with Hamas. And Hamas is, as you might hear, there's, you, know, you have ISIS, Al-Qaeda, Hamas, these are all uh, have differences, you know, some are Shi'i, some are Sunni, but in their, uh, let's say, approach to Israel, they, I might I say they're all, uh, all the same and we have no discussion with these. Guys, by the way, they, they didn't control uh, Gaza in the beginning. Uh, the, in the beginning, Gaza was given to the Palestinian Authority. There was elections in Gaza. Hamas got the power by elections. Since then, there's been no election. Hamas took the uh, Palestinian Authority officers and killed them all threw them from bridges with their heads down, and by violent, just simple violence is controlling Gaza, and basically the ones who are being mostly hurt by that is the people in themselves in Gaza. You have about two million people living in Gaza under uh, extreme vicious uh, regime, which is, uh, is, has no sensitivity to human rights at all, and has uh, one target to destroy Israel. So that's the situation we're facing in Gaza. They tried to do it with rockets and then we build the Iron Dome. So now they try to dig uh, tunnels and we're fighting constantly against the tunnels. And uh, that's the situation with Gaza. With Gaza, the way I see it, no chance for negotiations for peace. The only way that they could is just simply by hitting them and letting them know that whatever they would do, they would pay much uh, harder on all aspects. The problem is that they don't care if people are getting killed, only if they're leaders and are the one who's sensitive. So that's why uh, fighting them against, uh, you know, targeting their leaders is the most effective way in putting forward the message that if they mess with us, they're gonna be dead. That's as simple as that. So that's Gaza. Palestinian Authority is a, uh, is a different story in the sense that there have been a, a cooperation and there's been an agreement signed in 91, Oslo Agreement between uh, Israel and the Palestinian Authority. Some people in Israel uh, believe, Shalom Amir, some people in Israel, more to the left I would say, believe that they are partners for discussions for peace. In the right, uh, I think that, uh, at least I see it in a different way, I think that uh, Whatever, and now we're going into maybe the uh, Trump uh, hundred, uh, deal of the, the deal of the century uh, plan. I think that in Israel there's a strong majority that knows and understand that there cannot be another state between the Sea and Jordan and there, there's no chance for a Palestinian state. Because if you uh, trying to simplify that, we left Gaza and we see what happened and to take a problem like Gaza and magnify it 30 times within the heart of Israel is something that Israel cannot afford. So that's 
as simple as that, you know, I'm trying to, and that's not going into discussions, who has the right on the land, and, and who, you know, and putting that aside, I'm just saying that uh, we cannot afford having another, uh, another uh, state between, uh, in, within Israel. So uh, that's why I don't think this is something that can pass through. But what we're talking about is solutions of autonomy, because, uh, and, and we have some kind of that what's going on in the region, but basically what I believe is that we need to, Israel need to apply sovereignty over the Jewish areas in Judea and Samaria, and basically create a situation that these areas are controlled, not by Israeli army, but the Israel state. And regarding the mass areas of the Palestinians within Judea and Samaria, basically they should have autonomy that should be managed as an autonomy, and for future terms might work together with Jordan, where you have majority of Palestinians anyway there, you have the king controlling Jordan. Right now he's not interested in that, but things can change in the future, and we should prepare for such a coalition for the future. That's uh, what I see in, uh, in the issue. So I'm sorry, I hope uh, it was interesting. Uh, Thank you. It was very nice to hear you and see you guys, and good luck on your trip to Israel. Thank you for listening to this podcast, a product of the Miriam Institute, Israel's future in Israel's hands. It's our pleasure to provide you with exclusive content about the State of Israel by way of lectures, seminars, debates, and position papers featuring Israelis who have been at the heart of policymaking and policy implementation. The Miriam Institute is a US-based 501c3 non-for-profit for-purpose organization. If you're enjoying this program, why not partner with us today? Join us in our mission to steer, inform, and lead the international discourse about the State of Israel. Whether you invest in our campus initiatives, our work in the halls of legislation, or our gold standard tours to the State of Israel for international students and faculty, you can invest in the Miriam Institute today by making a tax-deductible donation to our work. Visit us online to learn more about our legacy and naming opportunities at www.miriaminstitute.org. The Miriam Institute, Israel's future in Israel's hands.